our sermon text from today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. As you get there, I just want to remind you that today we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper. So let this message be a preparation for your souls. Let the word of Christ wash your hearts as you prepare to observe this incredible ordinance that the Lord Jesus gave to us. Mark 3, 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be, for, will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. In 1857, an ancient Rome building was unearthed, a building dating back the second century A.D. In this building, a chamber was found containing a Roman graffito. A graffito is an archaeological term for an image etched on a surface, in this case, plaster, in order to communicate something. This specific graffito depicted a young man in a figure on a cross. A young man, the young man was dressed as a Roman guard and his left hand is raised towards the cross as a sign of worship. On the cross, we find a strange creature. Its body, human, but the head, one of a donkey. Underneath the picture, the words in Greek read in mockery, Alexamenus Sebete Theon. Alexamenus worships his God. The graffito is known as graffito blasphemo or blasphemous graffito. This is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, depiction of the crucifixion we know of and also a clear reminder to all of the of all of us that the world has always hated Christ if the world loves Christ it is a caricature of Christ that they love but Christ and him crucified the world has always Hated him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for, for the word of the cross is 
folly to those who were perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross stands before us today either as power or folly. There is no via media. There is no alternative. There are only two options. Our lips either move to bless God or they move to blaspheme God. We're either for God or we are against God. Christ may be the rock of salvation for some and the rock of stumbling for others. Friends, opposition to Christianity is not a new thing. Opposition to Christ is not new. We've seen it throughout our study in the Gospel of Mark. It's been gone on since our Lord set foot on earth. But we are not of the world. We are of Christ. We don't hate Christ. We love Him. We worship the one who accomplished victory over his enemies through a cross. The cross for us is not an object of mockery, but an object of power. A lamb who, who was slain will be before our eyes for all of eternity. Because Christ accomplishes his work by giving himself as a, as a ransom for many. So I want, you, I want to remind you of this this morning. The world will reject Christ. But Christ matters to us infinitely more than the world. May the world reject us as long as Christ receives us. So let's look at our text today. We're going to consider first the scribes rejecting Jesus in verse 22. So we've seen for the past several weeks the opposition towards Jesus increasing. Right, so as a way of review, chapter 2 was very much about Jesus being opposed. So in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, the scribes question in their hearts, not audibly, why Jesus would declare the paralytic man forgiven of his sins. Now, in chapter 2, verse 16, the scribes now get verbal. They, they speak. And they ask, Jesus' disciples, why does your master feast with sinners and tax collectors? In verse 18 of chapter 2, the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the scribes question Jesus directly. Why don't your disciples 223, the Pharisees questioned why Jesus' disciples pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath 
in order to eat? And the apex of this questioning comes at the end of that passage. As Jesus declares himself Lord of the Sabbath, therefore Lord of all, and the Pharisees plot together with the Herodians in order to kill Jesus. And this opposition, we're going to continue seeing all the way to its fruition. All the way to the accomplishment of this plot. And yet, Peter tells us, right, in his message in Acts, that's the definite plan of God. Men in their folly, in their rebellion, in their rejection of God, still accomplish the plan of God. Right? God's sovereignty is so great, it encompasses the faithful obedience of some and the utter rebellion of others. All things working together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. But Jesus' fame was also growing exponentially. We saw last week that all kinds of people were coming to Him. People from Jerusalem, we saw that from the very beginning. From the region of Galilee, we saw that from the beginning. But now we're seeing regions like Idumea, Tyre, Sidon, Jews, half-Jews, and Gentiles alike are being drawn to Jesus. Well, his fame also reached the high religious echelon. So now we see in verse 22, the big guys coming. The scribes, right, from Jerusalem. They come to Jesus. I, I don't think this is a minor detail. I think this is significant. I think that the local scribes were saying, we don't know what to do with this person, with this man. Can somebody help? So they send for help, and the scribes from Jerusalem come, and they say of Jesus, they come attacking, right? They say, he is possessed by Beelzebub. The origin of the name Beelzebub is, is uncertain. It means, it has come to mean master of the house in Jesus' time, and it became a common way of referring to Satan. So in other words, they were saying he is possessed by Satan. This was a wicked accusation. It was aimed to completely discredit and humiliate Jesus. They were saying that Jesus' power to perform miracles came from Satan and not from the Holy Spirit. And this is at the heart of Jesus' warning later on in this passage. Now notice that their denial is not that Jesus performed miracles. They were not saying his miracles are false or fake. No. The scribes did not deny Jesus' power to perform miracles. No, they were public. They were undeniable. They denied that the miracles were from God. When I read this, I think this is a good reminder to us that faith does not come from evidence. Faith comes from regeneration. 
sure, we tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God. We're always prepared to make a defense to anyone for the hope that is in us. But no one is saved on the basis of evidence. You know why? Because we are very good at suppressing the truth. Romans 1.20 For his, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, clearly perceived. The evidence of God is clear. Since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they, the Gentiles, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. It wouldn't matter how many miracles Jesus performed before the scribes, they would never believe Him because their hearts were darkened. A few weeks ago, a group of us from this church were sharing the gospel with a group of, of college students. And we asked them, if you had irrefutable proof of Christianity, that Christianity is true, would you become a Christian? And their answer was, no. That is shocking, isn't it? To know that something is true and to reject it. But the reality is that Christianity is never rejected on the basis of evidence. Christianity is always rejected on the basis of unbelief. And unbelief in Christ is a rejection of truth. So if you're seeking to evangelize someone... The best tool you have is not a clever personality, but a clear presentation of the gospel bathed with prayer. Okay? Those are the two things we do. We present the gospel and we pray. Folks don't come to faith because we're clever or smart. They come to faith because the gospel is powerful. The gospel is God's power for salvation. We are not. Our intellect is not. It's the plain message that convinces the sinner that they need God. Parents, let me remind you, as I need to be reminded every day, our children need us to help them with the deep questions of faith. But we will never be able to answer every question they have. We must rely on the power of the gospel. The salvation, their salvation does not depend on our strength, but on the strength of God. So here's my prayer for my children every day. They hear this. My son is starting to repeat it. Lord, regenerate their hearts. Work in their hearts. Lord, cause Christ to appear sweet to them. Put a desire for Christ in them. But let us also consider Jesus refuting the Pharisees. 
verses 23 to 27. In these five verses, Jesus proposes three short parables to demonstrate how illogical the scribes' arguments are. A parable is simply a story that proves a point. I think of parables as windows into the truth. Think of an enclosed room where secrets are concealed. Parables open a window into that room. Those who are interested in the truth will look through that window. Those who are not will ignore it. We're mistaken to think that Jesus always told parables so that people would understand. No. Jesus would tell parables so that those who were his would understand. And those who were not his would continue in the hardness of their hearts. We're going to see that in Mark 4 as we consider more of the teachings of Jesus. But Jesus calls the scribes to himself and exposes their folly with this simple statement. How can Satan cast out Satan? Right? How can you say that Satan is being successful and at the same time Satan is working against itself or himself? In other words, how can I both work for Satan and against Satan? Verses 24 through 26, what Jesus does here is he basically says the same thing and slightly different every time. This is very typical of, of Hebrew teaching, repetition, where the, repet the following statement changes slightly. Oral cultures do this a lot, right? Because in, in, in reading cultures, we can see a statement. If we need to see it again, we'll look at it again. And if we need to see it again, we'll look at it again. But in oral cultures, right, where, where, where uh, doctrine is taught through storytelling, uh, often teachers would repeat themselves and change slightly what they said. But, but really, they mean the same thing, so they're building emphasis through repetition. Do you see how the conjunction and connects verses 24 and 25? The beginning of verse 25, the word and. And then again, we see and connecting verses 25 and 26. In verse 24, Jesus compares Satan's sphere to a house. In verse 25, he compares his sphere to a kingdom. In verse 26, he explicitly mentions Satan himself. And Jesus is basically saying that Satan can't be both successful and divided at the same time. Jesus' power over demons was obvious. The scribes were not denying that. He had by this point already cast out several demons in his ministry. And these casting out right, were public. People saw it. People heard the testimony of the demons. Back in chapter 1, verse 24, when Jesus, of Naz when Jesus was in the synagogue, an evil spirit cried out to him, What have you to do with us, Jesus 
of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? And he is speaking here in the plural, demons, because he's speaking on behalf of the entire demonic realm. Have you, Jesus, come to destroy all of us? And the answer is yes. He did come to destroy them. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So friends, Satan is our great enemy. But Jesus is our great defender. And to confuse the two of them is a foolish mistake. To conflate Satan and Jesus is to conflate good with evil. Now hear this warning from Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Friends, we cannot at any level attribute the de to the devil the goodness of Jesus. Or attribute to Jesus the wickedness of the devil. Lest we ourselves, our houses, or our very kingdom be divided. Friends, Christianity is not a religion that we customize to ourselves. We don't determine what is good and what is evil. God does. We don't customize it to our liking. We don't create our own morality. We receive it from God. Christianity is a religion that we conform to. Jesus is king and we are not. What he says is true, is true. What he says is right, is right. What he says is good, is indeed good, and we receive and make it our own. We don't think of ourselves as Pharisee-like. But when we look at what God says and we say, does not apply to me. And we look at what God says as good and we say, I don't think so, Jesus. When we look at what God says is evil and we say, that's actually good. We're not being any different from the scribes and the Pharisees. So when God says that marriage is a union between a man and a woman, he calls it, he calls it good we agree with him, and we call it good. When God says that every life is fully dignified from womb to tomb, he calls it good, we call it good. When God says that we should make no distinction among people and show no favoritism towards others, he calls that good, we call it good. God's morality is our morality. And where we differ, we adjust to him. Never him to us, lest we be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Now look at verse 27. 27 is connected to verses 24 through 26 with a different conjunction. Right? 24 through 26, they were adding, right? And, and. Now 27 contrasts. 24 through 26. Jesus shifts his point now. In verse 24 through 26, Jesus describes the reality of the satanic sphere. But now, 
Jesus emphasizes his victory over Satan. Notice that Jesus returns to the imagery that he initially proposed in verse 25 of a house. He describes Satan as a strong man, but he, Christ, has plundered the strong man's house. He has taken his goods. And how does he do that? He binds Satan. Friends, the reason why Satan has no power over us who are in Christ today is because Jesus has entered Satan's house and he has bound him. I'm often puzzled when I interact with Christians and they make such a big deal about the influence of Satan in their lives. Now, that's not something that we should ignore, but is that our primary concern? Friends, I am more concerned with the dangers of the enemy within than the power of the enemy without. I'm concerned that we fight sin and let Jesus take care of Satan. Let us have victory over the indwelling sin in our lives and know that Christ has bound Satan. Well, verse 27 is actually a very debated uh, verse. So I want to answer a few questions about verse 27. Now, I also want to say something about verse 27. Faithful Christians understand verse 27 in different ways. Okay? But I'm going to present to you some things that I think are true about this verse. There's room here for disagreement, but I think I'm right in in how I'm seeing this verse. First question I want to answer is, how did Jesus bind Satan? And and I don't think this is very debated. By overcoming his temptations in the wilderness. That's how Jesus bound Satan. Now, we saw that back in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, Satan had never met a man who was not deceived by him. Every man who had ever uh, been tempted by Satan had succumbed to his temptation. But Jesus was different. Jesus, when tempted, responded with faith every time. Now, Jesus would finalize the binding of Satan at the cross. I was talking to a friend last night about this text, and he said, there is a sense in which Satan is bound, Satan is being bound, and Satan will finally be bound. And he's right. But when Jesus cries out, it is finished, one of the most loaded phrases in the entire Bible, one of the things that he was declaring was his definite victory over Satan. Friends, our great enemy is defeated. Now, number two, is Satan bound today still? Absolutely he is. None of Jesus' work that he accomplished when he was on earth have been undone. So to say that Jesus bound Satan and Satan is no longer bound is to say that Jesus' work did not last. Okay? If Jesus bound Satan, Satan is bound. We read this earlier, right? A a similar statement in Colossians 2. He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them 
in him that is Christ. Now, bound does not mean powerless. Bound means restricted. Satan's power of deception was once great, but now he is, it is diminished because of the triumph over Christ. And it will eventually completely cease. So when you think of bound, think of dog on a leash rather than dangerous person on a straitjacket. But we should have great confidence that Christ can help us overcome the works of the devil. When Satan is attempting to destroy us, discourage us, disillusion us. We must be reminded that Jesus has already bound Satan. The ancient serpent is not dead, but it is defanged. We sang this earlier, didn't we? When Satan tempts me to despair... And tells me of the guilt within. He's a deceiver. Upward I look. And see him there who made an end. To all my sin. Do you see how the power of Satan. Dies. In light of the work. Of Christ. Also it is important for us to consider. The Bible tells us that. Although Satan is bound today. A time is coming when he will be loosed. A time that he will wreak havoc in the world, and especially among the church. And the time to prepare for that time is right now. For his time will be short, and his condemnation will be sure. Well, third question. What are the goods that Jesus plundered? Us. We were bound to Satan because of our, our slavery to sin. Those who were once held captive by Satan. We are the goods that Jesus has taken away from him. We were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. We were people who walked in great darkness with no hope, no promise for God from God. No covenant, but the glory of the nations now has come to Christ. We belonged to Satan, but Jesus is redeeming men from every men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue to himself. Jesus' work was one of restoration. He is the second Adam who redeems the results of the fall, of the sin of the rebellion of the first Adam. In Adam, we were all bound to sin and dead. In Adam, we became slaves to Satan. But in Christ, we are redeemed, restored, renewed. Let's just listen to Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, and then 4 and 5. And you were dead in the trespasses of your sin and with which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That was our original state. That's where we were. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace 
you have in Satan. Friends, Satan is no longer Lord over us because we have found a better Lord. We're not bound to Satan anymore because we're bound to Christ. Our will was to do the will of Satan, but now our will has been transformed. Now our desire is to do the will of God. Why? Because God is rich in mercy. Because God saw our condition, our rebellion, our constant sin. Every intention of our hearts was to sin. Before Christ, nothing that we do was for the glory of God. Nothing that we did was for the glory of God. But friends, God is merciful and He reaches down to us. He tells us, stop your feeble attempts to reach up to me. Just recognize that apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the glorious message of Christ. This is how Christ sets us free from bondage to Satan. Before we finish, we need to consider verses 28 through 30. Jesus warns the Pharisees. Now, these verses contain the famous teaching of the unpardonable sin. So that should be an easy thing to teach, right? Well, let's see what the Scripture says, and let's see if we can understand what Jesus is saying. So we get to the warning at the, fin- at the, at the end of this section. Jesus says, truly I say to you, who is Jesus interacting with here? He's interacting with the scribes, isn't he? So he's issuing this warning to the scribes, those that came to oppose him, and to attribute his works to the devil. So truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. These verses have been the source of great debates in the church for millennia, and it's understandable It's a strong warning. Perhaps more importantly, these verses have been a concern for many throughout church history. Many have asked the question, have I committed the unpardonable sin? In a room this size, certainly many of us, perhaps most of us, have asked ourselves the question, have I committed the unpardonable sin? I am sure that here today, perhaps there are some who are asking that question today. Have I committed a sin that has sealed me for eternal condemnation? This verse has the power to both comfort and challenge. This verse should awaken the heart of those who are slumbering spiritually. So we don't want to remove the sting of the warning. These verses remind us of a God who judges sin eternally. That's whom we stand before today. That's whom we're going to stand before 
one day. Friends, do not presume on the goodness of God. Do not sleep on this warning. If you are holding on to sin in a faithless, unrepentant way, let this warning wake you up. Christ will come one day to judge the living and the dead. But let me also comfort you. If you are concerned that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, the mere fact that this concerns you is evidence that you probably have not committed the unpardonable sin. There's an element of fear of God in your heart. We see none of that in the scribes, right? And and if you have trusted in Christ, notice, notice what verse 29 says. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. That's a permanent state, right? So the unpardonable sin does not come on Christians who are once saved and sealed for eternal salvation. The unpardonable sin is not a warning against apostasy, leaving the faith. It is a warning for never embracing the faith. Friends, if you're concerned that you have committed the unpardonable sin, you should come to Christ. If you are coming to Christ in faith and repentance, he will receive you. Okay, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So don't worry so much about the unpardonable sin. Come to Christ. He will not cast you out. He promises that. So let this be a, both a challenge and a comfort to you. But what is the unpardonable sin? Well, put it simply, it is, the in, it is to intentionally give Satan credit for the things the Holy Spirit has done. To intentionally give Satan the credit for what the Holy Spirit has done. It is, uh, it, isn't, isn't this what the scribes were doing? Jesus lived his human life in the power of the Spirit, right? He is baptized, and what do you see descending on him? Spirit, empowering him for the ministry. But the scribes attribute his works to Satan. Verse 30 tells us that Jesus was issuing this warning specifically because of what the scribes had said. But at the heart of the unpardonable sin, there is faithlessness. You cannot believe the Holy Spirit and attribute the works, His works, to the devil at the same time. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is incompatible with faith. And someone who has no faith in God can never be saved. Is sealed for condemnation. It is by faith that we are saved, and the faith that we have is not only in the person of Christ, but also in the work of Christ, the work that He has performed by the power of the Spirit. 
So I don't want you to miss the weight of this warning. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is ultimately the rejection of the work of Christ. And if we don't believe in the work of Christ, we don't believe the gospel. And friends, if we don't believe the gospel, none of our sins will be forgiven. Christ's work is His perfect life lived out for us. Christ's work is His death in our place. Christ's work is His resurrection for us. Christ's work is the sending of the Spirit in order to indwell us. And if we attribute that, not to the Holy Spirit, but to Satan, or to anything else, we have ultimately rejected Christ. But the good news is that if we believe in all that, as the work of Christ, enabled by the Holy Spirit, friends, we are sure of our eternal destiny. We're headed towards heaven. But I also want you to notice an important detail that's often overlooked in this passage. Look at verse 28. Jesus starts the warning with a very hopeful message. He says, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. And whoever blasphemes their, uh, whatever blasphemies they utter. Do you realize how great, hopeful, merciful that message is? All our sins will be forgiven. Now, there's an understanding here, right? As we recognize by faith and confess our sins, right? How can we receive this? How can we receive this great mercy and forgiveness from Christ? We receive this by faith, by believing in Christ. The world opposes Christ by rejecting his testimony. But friends, we receive his testimony. And we receive by believing in him. We repent of our sins. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. To me, one of the most shocking statements in the Bible comes from Acts 2.38. Peter is speaking here at the day of Pentecost to the very people who crucified Jesus. They have come back to their religious, uh, doing their religious pilgrimages, and they're back in Jerusalem, and Peter is preaching, and he says, you crucified Jesus. You killed the Son of God. And that message cuts them to the heart, and they say, okay, what should we do then? Yes, we have killed the Son of God. What should we do then? Now, if there's one sin that we should think that's unpardonable, God should never forgive that. It is the killing of Jesus. But Peter does not say that that's the unpardonable sin. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So friends, have you out those who crucified Jesus? Is your sin greater than that? I don't think any of us would say that that's the case. 
So is there forgiveness in Christ for you? Yes. There is forgiveness in Christ for you. There is forgiveness in Christ for all who come to him in faith and repentance. If we repent and turn to the cross of Christ, our sins will be forgiven. If we, looked at the, if we look at the cross of Christ, like our friend from the beginning, Alexamenes, we see it in the joy, as the joy of our salvation. The world may oppose us, the world may mock us, the world may cancel us, but God will never cast us out. Now in the chamber adjacent to where the depiction of Alexa Menes was found, there was another chamber. This chamber also had a graffito on the wall. This one, no depiction, just words. In this chamber, someone wrote in Latin the words, Alexa Menes Fidelis. Alexa Menes, the faithful. In one room, that was the rejection of the world. And in the, other in the other room, the acceptance of God. May we be found in that second room. May we be found faithful to Christ, to his work on our behalf. Would you pray with us? Oh, Father, how we need the faith that you give. How we need to be found faithful. How we need, Lord, to be strengthened against the work of Satan. Lord, in and of ourselves, we can't do it. Satan is too powerful. But Lord, Jesus has already defeated him. Lord, our enemy has no power over us, but we're held together by the power of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his deep mercy. Thank you for his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. We pray in the name of Jesus.